Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm Eric Flickinger, happy to welcome you to a brand new quarter of studies. And this quarter, we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis, looking at the beginning, looking at how it all began, and why it's so important for us to understand that today. We're going to be blessed this quarter by several guests who are going to be helping us understand the book of Genesis a little bit better. And to begin with, I'm delighted to have Dr. Philip Samani here with us on the Sabbath School. He is the Professor Emeritus at Southern Adventist University. He also taught for a number of semesters at the Theological Seminary at Andrews University. He is a well-known author, and he was the editor of the Sabbath School lessons for some time. Dr. Saman, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Now, this quarter is really fascinating, and I want to dive right into this uh, with the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to look at this passage and see if we can understand why, all the way at the beginning of the Bible, this is so important. Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is in this deceptively simple sentence that starts the whole Bible? Why is it so important for us to start on the right path to end up at the right destination? Well, everything starts with creation. And by the way, when you read this text, uh, the name of God is right in the middle of that verse, which means he is the focus. God is a focus. Uh, without God, there'd be no creation. And by the way, uh, in this text here, uh, God is the subject. Or whenever it comes to creation, God is the subject because nobody can create anything without God. So uh, it starts us off in a simple way, very simple sentence, but very profound. Because who else can create? He created heavens and earth. Nobody else can do that. He is unique in the sense of his gift of creation. That's right. And, and if we don't understand who God is, I mean, we could end up going a hundred different directions. But if we understand that he is our creator, that he's the one who started everything, in whom all things consist, that he brought from the nothingness everything that we do have, it really helps us to get a better understanding of who he is. And also, you can tell this, this simple verse here that introduced the whole Bible is intentional and it's not said by chance. And it tells you that God's creation was sudden, intentional, it happened. Let there be light, there was light. But yet the evolutionary theory says that it took millions of years and things moved from uh, the inferior to the superior. But this one, it moved from the superior to the inferior. In other words, God made everything perfect and beautiful. And so this also tells us that it was an act of God's creation. It was his will. It happened quickly, not taken many years. So we've got this picture of God creating at the beginning, which, as you mentioned a moment ago, kind of stands in opposition to this this theory of evolution that is so prominent in the world today. But when you look at the book of Genesis, sometimes people will say, well, you've got a, you've got a picture of, of creation in Genesis chapter 1, and then you've got a different picture of creation in Genesis chapter 2. But it's not a different picture. It's just kind, it's kind of a different perspective, I guess, is maybe one way of, of looking at it. It's not they're not contradictory, they're more complementary. Yes. So how did Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 fit together? What are some things that we can 
learn about God and his creation from these two chapters? Well, you know, it's interesting. In chapter 1, there's a certain name for God. In chapter 2, there's another name for God. And they're complementary, as you said. In chapter 1, it uses the word Elohim for God, which signifies his majesty, his greatness, his power, his transcendence. But in chapter 2, the name Yahweh is used, which is a sacred name for the Jewish people, Yahweh, which implies personal relationship, love, um, uh, uh, you know, intimacy. Mm. So it's interesting that in chapter 1, Elohim implies he is the great God who sits upon his throne and rules the whole universe. But then in chapter 2, he is the personal God who sits on the throne of our hearts. So when we're looking at this, this, this is not two different gods. It's not two different descriptions of two different events. It's one event, but God shows us to be, shows us who he is from two different perspectives, that he, he, he is an, an overarching, all-powerful God. But he's also this, this God who cares, this God who loves us, this God who wants to have a relationship with us. And so when we're interacting with God, when we're learning about God, we see him from both perspectives. And, and Genesis gives us this, uh, this idea of, of who he really is. Now, when it describes creation here in Genesis, you, you see over and over again that the Bible says that God created something and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Let's talk about what good is. What was good? What is good? Well, good is good for us, as we say, this is good. Um, but with God, when something is good, it's really excellent. Mm. Um, you know, and it means it's finished, it's completed, it's perfected. It means it, it worked out, uh, along with the idea of beauty and, uh, and a sense of a finished, perfected kind of work. But when it comes to the sixth day, when everything was created, God said, he looked at everything and he said, it's very good. So what do you think this added word very good? Does God have something good and something very good? Well, it's going to be even, if it were possible, even better. He's got something significant. He's bringing things to a point, it sounds like. Yes, a point of completion and beauty and perfection. God is perfect, and whatever he makes, whatever he creates, is perfect. And, and, and it also applies to us personally. The work that he began in us, he will complete. Isn't that something? We're God's project, and he never lets go of us until he finishes his work. Many of us start different projects, don't finish them. He is determined to finish his work in creation and also our lives. So that's an interesting point to think about. It has to do with our salvation. And another thing I want to say from your previous question, and that was, how did the transcendent God, who sits upon his throne, mingles with Adam and Eve? I mean, you know, he's not upon his throne, he's right there with them. And so I want to say that when he unites them together on Friday, the sixth day of the week, you know, he, he brought union to their experience, union. But on Sabbath, there was communion. That should be our ideal relationship with God. We're united with Him for the purpose of communing with Him. And that's exactly what happened on Friday and Sabbath. So He wants to do the very same thing with us. Yes. 
I don't know if you've ever wondered whether God wants to spend time with you. Sometimes as Christians, we get this idea that I think we can fall into a pit on either side of the road. Either we think that God is so big, so amazing, so enormous, so distant, so far away that we, we lack that, that intimate relationship with him. But we can fall in the ditch on the other side of the road too, where we get this idea that God is, is my buddy. He's the guy I hang with and so forth. And we lose this idea of how immense and how grand and how amazing he is. For somebody who's struggling one way or the other, what would be some, some ways that you might encourage them to, to see to mingle these two ideas together? You think, what, what has worked for you to, well, to see both elements of who God is? These two ideas must always walk hand in hand. As you said, we should avoid extremes. The balanced approach is to always recognize the grandeur of God, the, the awesomeness of God. We have to. He's God. If we ignore that, we don't really recognize reality. But that reality of the awesomeness of God helps us to appreciate the intimacy. Can you imagine an awesome God like that is willing to be next to me? He's willing to commune with me on a daily basis. And I tell you, when we appreciate his grandeur, his awesomeness, then we appreciate even more his intimacy. That's why they must be together. It's a beautiful picture of, of who God wants to be, who, who God is. It's not even that he wants to be, it's who he is. He is this, this God who is transcendent, who is enormous, who is huge, and yet he is this God who wants to have a relationship with us, which it brings him close to us. And that's why the idea of worship comes in here, because worship is, he is worthy of praise, he is worthy of thanks, he is worthy of everything that we have to appreciate him more. And, uh, and I tell you, I know people, as you do, who focus on the other. He's my buddy. <laughs> he, he's just, you know, and, and the way they talk to him is like they talk to a regular people. <laughs> and, and that's good to have the intimacy, but we have to have that reverence. You know, um, you know for example, t- take me, for example. You know, some of my students I've taught for 30 years, they insist, even when they grow up and get married and have a bunch of children, they always insist on calling me Dr. Saman. You see? I say, you don't have to. Now you're old enough to call me. For, he said, no, out of respect for you, I want to call you doctor. And you know, that, that's the idea. Not that I insist on that, but you know, they want to show respect. But at the same time, we can be close friends. Sure. Yep. So the two ideas really go together well. I think they do. And what we see here in the book of Genesis is this picture of God who is our creator and yet our Redeemer. And as we go through the book of Genesis, of course, we're going to, to develop that theme. But, uh, but here at creation, we get this, this incredible picture of God being with us, creating us and being with us. And that's a powerful, powerful thought. You know something, Eric? By the way, mentioning your name, I want to claim him as my student. <laughs> he got a course in his master's program. I want to tell the audience you got an A. And so congratulations. It, it, it was a hard-earned A. And so it's good for a professor <laughs> and a student to dialogue together. What I want to mention, pick on, uh, you, uh, you mentioned the word crea- uh, redemption. Mm-hmm. So then you have this balance, creation and redemption. The Lord is not only our creator, he's our redeemer. And by the way, in the Garden of Eden, he created us in a personal way. You know, He said, let there be light. Um, that, that's the Elohim. Let there be light. He's sitting on his throne. 
But he comes in chapter 2 to us and he says, I want to create you in my image, in my likeness. So, so you know, he didn't say, let there be man. But rather, he got really involved in a very intimate, personal way. His hands, can you imagine, the hands of the Lord were marred with clay. What clay in fashioning us? I mean, can you imagine when he fashioned Adam? And Adam looked like, like almost he could breathe, he could talk. Perfect creation. And he said to him, you know, uh, I want to have a relationship with you. And so therefore, he breathed into him. Now, can you imagine, Eric, the hands of the Lord were smeared, smeared with, with clay, but his mouth as well. You know, I, I, there's no reason for me not to take it literally. In breathing into his nostrils, if I breathe into your nostrils, that means my lips are going to touch your nose. Right. Yep. Can you imagine a great God, an awesome God, getting so involved that his hands were, uh, were smeared with wet clay in his mouth? But not only that, not only that. One pair of hands at the very beginning of creation. And the creation was finished and perfect and complete. Then later on, he, when we fell, when we sinned, he wanted to create, recreate us, to redeem us. And his two hands were involved too. And that's on the cross. His two hands were smeared with warm blood. In saving. What did he do after that? He said, see, in John 19.30, it says, he said it was finished. The same word used for his creation. We were perfect creation at the beginning, and he gave us perfect redemption. And what did he do after he said it's finished? He rested in the grave on the Sabbath day, rested from his work of redemption. And the best thing we can do is not to say it's just perfect day or it's the correct day. It's not Wednesday. It's not Thursday. It's just Sabbath. But more than that, this represents salvation by faith in Christ. We rest in Christ's perfected works. Not by our own works, that's legalism, but we are saved by his perfected works. So, so it's a beautiful balance between creation and redemption. It really is, and we're going to delve into that balance here in just a few moments. We're going to take a break, but before we do, I want to encourage you, make sure that you go over to the It Is Written website, itiswritten.shop, and you can pick up the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath School Study Guide, and it's on the book of Genesis. So it is written dot shop. Pick up that companion book and you will be blessed. In just a moment, we're going to come back with Dr. Philip Saman as we continue delving into the story of creation in the book of Genesis. We'll be right back. If you enjoy coloring, then you are going to love the Buried Treasure Coloring Book from My Place with Jesus. The Buried Treasure Coloring Book has more than just pictures to color. You'll also enjoy activity pages, each accompanied by their very own audio story. Mr. Dixon came across a small, well-weeded rice patch out in the middle of a field. Get ahead of a rainy day or a relaxing evening as a family and order the Buried Treasure Coloring Book from It Is Written. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm here again with Dr. Philip Simon, and we're looking at the book of Genesis, specifically at creation. And when we left off, we were talking about the Sabbath, the significance of the Sabbath. God created, he worked for six days, and then on the seventh day, 
it says he rested. Now, why is the Sabbath so important, not just for you or for me, but for everybody? What's the significance of the Sabbath? What's wrapped into that? If we're talking about creation, there's something there. And that's why Jesus said, by the way, Jesus rested on the Sabbath at creation with Adam and Eve. And also, the same Jesus rested on the Sabbath in the grave after he finished his work, perfect work of redemption. Uh, Now, you know, I'm reading from Genesis chapter 2, if you want to open your Bibles to that. And it says here, Thus the heavens, verse 1, and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Verse 2, And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. What makes it significant? You know, people say, what day should I rest on? You know, what an interesting question. Let's find out. And how do you find out? Well, God rested on that day. And if he rests on day, I want to rest on that day. I want to rest on the same day God rested on. So and I want to be like Adam and Eve, resting with Jesus and having this communion. So he rested on that day. Yes. It also says that he blessed that day. Right, right there. And, and he sanctified it. What's, what's the significance of, we understand resting, at least we have a, an understanding of resting. What about blessing it and sanctifying it? Why is that so important? That's in verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. Uh, well, to bless you know, when God blesses people, when Jesus blessed the children, when mothers brought the children to Jesus, He put His hand and blessed them. God is the source of all blessings. All blessings flow from Him. And when He blesses somebody, it makes a huge difference. Sanctify, He made it holy. It's something sacred. It's not something to be temp- tempered with. When God makes something holy, it is holy like He is holy. And so when people tell me it doesn't make a difference, What's so special about the Sabbath? After all, it was made for the Jews, not the Christians. And they're surprised when I tell them, Adam and Eve were not Jews. And they say, think about, weren't they? I said, no, they're not Jews. There were no Americans, no Jews, no, no nationality. So it's for humanity. And why is it so special? Because he did three things on it. He rested. So which day do I rest on? The same day God rested on. Which day do I rest on? The Jesus rested on the Sabbath, during his ministry, and even in his death. So I want to follow what happened in the God of Eden, what happened after the death of Jesus and before his death, that he rested on the Sabbath, sanctified me. You know, sanctified me so holy that you don't mess with it. You keep it as is, honorable, elevated, you know, close to the heart of God. You know, one thing that kind of helped me to understand this a little bit better was Looking at creation some years ago, I, I always kind of knew that God created. But we recognize that God is three persons, one God, the, the Godhead, if you will, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But at some point I was studying and I realized that the one who was doing a lot of the, the creating at the beginning was the Son. Right. That, that is Jesus. Right. You read that in, in John 1, verses 1 through 3, Colossians 1, I think 16 that Jesus was, was this active agent at creation. So as Christians, we, we of course love Jesus, at, at least I assume we do. And, yeah. and he's the one who made the Sabbath at the beginning, who, who created in six days and then rested and wanted to have that relationship with us. That's Jesus wanting to have a relationship with, with his creation all the way from, from Genesis to our day and beyond. That's beautiful. 
beautiful because Jesus, the Son of God, kind of specializes in planet Earth. He's the one who volunteered to die for planet Earth. And so, so and all things were made, as you mentioned, through him, by him. And so, uh, you know, I believe that Jesus was the one who breathed into Adam the breath of life. And, and you know, when he breathed into his, into his nostrils the breath of life, you know, I think of the story about Michelangelo. When he, when he sculpted the image of Moses, you've probably seen that. And, and Moses looked like he was alive. And it's told that Michelangelo took his little hammer and he, and he tapped his knee, the knee of Moses, and he said, Moses, now speak to me. Of course, Michelangelo was in the career. God has a unique gift of creation. And he did that to Adam. Adam, I'm breathing into you. Now, Adam, speak to me. And Adam spoke. Aren't we fortunate and aren't we blessed to have a God like that? That's, that's incredible. That's, that's powerful. Something that, that God can do that even one of the greatest sculptors, artists in the history of the world can't do it. He might have made Moses look real, look alive, but there's a big difference between looking alive and actually being alive. Right. And, and, and God is the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can bring us alive. And Jesus is unique in that aspect. Nobody is like him. Nobody creates like him. Nobody saves like him. That's why John 3.16 uses the word monogeneous. You know, it's not really begotten. You know, God doesn't beget anybody. And, and we don't beget God. He, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his monogeneous son. means unique. Unique in creation, unique in redemption, unique in everything else. So again, we are very fortunate to have this unique Jesus who, who solves the most difficult problems in this world and he gives us salvation and life and takes away our sin and death. Unique in salvation, unique in creation. Powerful. And, and not a picture again of, of God being solely distant and big and magnificent, which he is, but also close. Getting, getting his, as you mentioned, his hands dirty with, with us, his creation. And I don't know about you, but I, I still fall short from time to time. Don't quite live up to God's ideal for me. And, and yet he still works with me. He's still, he's patient with me. He, he urges, he guides, he nudges, sometimes he kicks and, and says, this is the way, walk ye in it. But he cares and he cares about you too. So you may be wondering whether God really does care. I want to encourage you, he does. He cares about you immensely, enough to be involved in your life. And as we go through the book of Genesis, we're going to see how God is involved in so many people's lives, from Adam and Eve, through uh, Abraham and, and others. And we're going to get to see this picture of God, uh, an intimate, a loving, a caring God, and still a very powerful, powerful God. Let me react to what you just said. You know, Jesus not only cares, but he can. You know, there are people around us, our friends care, but can't do much about our problem. He, he, he cares, but he also can. Uh, and that's the unique ability of Jesus to do that. Uh, so, I, I think that's huge. That's powerful. How many times has somebody come to you with a, with a challenge, a problem that they're facing in their lives, and the most that you can say is, yeah, I wish I were, there was something that I could do to help. And yet, yet Jesus can. But not only he can, he also has the gift of compensation. 
you know, more and more appreciate Jesus being the compensator, divine compensator. Like we do our best with a clear conscience, with clear motives, but we'll all always fall short because we don't have absolute perfection of God, but he steps into our lives to compensate by his grace for all our shortcomings. We're covered. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you. I know it certainly is for me. We're looking here at, at creation, and this, this week's study is a, is a powerful one. It says that he, he finished his work of, of cre- creation or recreation and redemption. You mentioned that. What hope is there for us? I'm, I'm sort of leading you here, but I think it's appropriate. It's okay. It's, you can lead me. <laughs> we, we fall short. At least I do. I'm going to make an assumption that perhaps other people do as well. He's started a work in us, but there's a promise there. He says, if he's started the work or begun the work in us, he's also going to what? Complete it. Again, finished work. That's beautiful, awesome. It's, uh, it's perfected. He's going to do it because we're his project. You know something? It's just brought to my mind, and I'm going to quote a Jewish rabbi by the name Abraham Heschel, who wrote a small little book entitled The Sabbath. And I was amazed, this Jewish rabbi, I don't know how much he knows about, uh, you know, the, the love of God. I mean, I think of him as a legalist in a way, but maybe he's, apparently he's not. So he says in his book, this is a summary of his book, he talks about the fourth commandment. And he said it has two parts, a short part and a longer part. The short part, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He said most of us rest on that day, worship on that day. He said, we keep the first part, but we do not. We never keep the second part. I said, what does he mean by that? He said, in six days, you shall do all your work. <laughs> you talk about being, having shortcomings and not, not doing everything. In six days, you shall do all your work. He said, but nobody, including himself, ever could finish all our work in six days. He said, we all fail. We all have lists. I will accomplish this and this this week. But we come to Friday, sundown. And we look back and say, I haven't finished all my work. It has to wait till Sunday and Monday. Now, this is how we resolve this dilemma. So he could rest in peace. And knowing that all his works were finished in God's finished work. He said, even though we come to Friday sundown, and we haven't finished all our work, but we enter this Sabbath rest as if we have finished, because God finished. So we rest in God's accomplished work. A Jewish rabbi saying this, it's amazing. It sounds like he's got a pretty good grasp on that. Absolutely. the gospel, yes. We are rapidly getting to the end of the time that we have here today, but we hope that you have been blessed by our study on the book of creation. Remember that what we have here is a God who loves us, a, a, a God who cares about us, a God who got his hands dirty, as you mentioned, kind of a uh, wet with clay at the beginning and, and marred with blood at the end of his earthly ministry here. And he's a God who cares desperately about you. I want to encourage you, continue studying this quarter's Sabbath school lesson. We're going to be back again with Dr. Saman. We're going to have some other guests as well. And we want to invite you to come back as well as we dig into the book of Genesis for Sabbath school. God bless you and we look forward to seeing you next time.